0: A word of warning. This podcast contains discussions that some listeners may find distressing or triggering. Please use your discretion. and welcome to Reclaim Me. My name is Madeline Heather and today I am joined by somebody from the USA, Shelley. Hi, Shelley.
1: Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you for coming. It's always fun to meet someone from other parts of the world.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. I'm so thrilled to have you on. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Give us a little bit of background and where you're from and what you do.
1: Yeah, definitely. So I live in Austin, Texas. I actually grew up here. So I've lived here most of my life, which is pretty... Rare for anyone who's heard of Austin. A lot of we have a lot of new people move here, and a lot of people move away. So I've kind of stayed here and um, seen the city change a lot over the years, which has been cool. But um, yeah, I've had kind of an interesting career progression. I guess I started out working in marketing, and then just realized I wasn't feeling fulfilled or satisfied in that at all. And so I kind of realized that I wanted to do something where I would be helping people more. And so I um, actually switched to working. With children. So uh, right now, my day job is um, I'm a behavior therapist for children with autism. So I work one on one with kids and just help them with their a lot of like social skills and life skills and communication and things like that. And then in 2020, I also realized that I wanted to start helping people um, helping other survivors as well. So I started a Facebook group um, that's called Surviving and Thriving. And it's just become a really great community where people are able to share their stories and ask questions, ask for advice. Um, And then on top of that, I realized that I was really interested in going into the coaching, the like life coaching or relationship coaching space. So I went through a training program for that and started working one-on-one with clients who are I I mostly work with survivors. I work with mostly women who are wanting to kind of work through their healing process. And it's a lot of working on just different areas of their life that they're wanting to improve on. So relationships or sex or um, just self-esteem, self-love, things like that. So, and then I also started a group coaching program as well. So I kind of love both of those. I love like um, connecting one-on-one with people. But then I also really like yeah. um, the group where we get to, you know, hear a lot of different people's stories and things like that. And then I'm currently working on a digital course that's, that's just going to be kind of a lot of the same information that I share with my clients, but just a way for more people to get access to it. So it'll be kind of a series of videos where I talk about different topics that have helped me in my healing journey. So, yeah, so that's kind of a bit about me and then I, I share a lot about this on my Instagram and my TikTok account, which are both called Shamelessly Shelley. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Yeah.
0: That's so um so interesting as well. I've had very much the same kind of path where I started in healthcare. Um I ended up in um like local and state government. Um, and now I work with I work on a program called the Rise program um, for the state government, government of Victoria. And we, um, run like digitization services, but we only employ people on the autism spectrum. So I'm kind of getting, um, people on the autism spectrum that are job ready. Um, you know, and, and it's such an interesting cohort of people to work with because they call it a, um, autism spectrum disorder for a reason. Each and every person is so unique and different, mostly so gentle and kind and sweet. And it's just, mm-hmm. yeah, that's just a, an amazing, an amazing job. That's so cool that you get to work with people um, at such a young age as well.
1: Yeah, you're so right. It's it's interesting. I'd worked with kids for a while doing like babysitting and nannying and things like that. And then, um, yeah, getting into this space of working with children who have autism, I think yeah, it's totally true that it is such a spectrum, and um, it's just each child is so unique. I mean, every child is unique, every person is unique, obviously. But yeah, they're all so different and interesting, and yeah, most of them are just so like sweet and kind, and um, just really, really smart and intelligent too. So it's that's awesome that you you know work somewhere where they're working to employ people on the spectrum. So I think that's definitely statistically a lot of people with that are diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder have a hard, you know, have a harder time finding a job or don't end up working. So yeah, it's definitely cool that the autism center that I work at now, we we're kind of working with younger children. So we're helping them be able to hopefully go into a regular school system, which obviously hopefully down the line will help them be able to get a job if they're able to get a good education. So yeah, it's awesome. It's always interesting. Absolutely. When we have little connections like
0: that. You are a survivor yourself um, and you've got, a story to tell. Do you mind giving us a bit of like background where you were when and and what age you were and everything when, when this happened for you?
1: Yeah, so I actually have um, kind of three different separate experiences that happened, but they were all around the same age. So the first one was when I was 19. I was in college and university. Um, so I was, yeah, the first one happened kind of the summer between my first and second year of college. And then I had two kind of similar experiences that happened when I was 20. So 19 and 20 were um, kind of the ages of mine. So it was definitely an interesting age of, you know, um, being old enough, you know, being not being a minor anymore, but also when I look, you know, I'm 28 now. So I kind of look back on those ages and think, wow, I've definitely grown and changed a lot since in the past seven or eight years, you know, so I think, um, still a very young age to, I mean, no age is a good age to go through something like that, obviously, but, um, but yeah, kind of like entering my twenties, I guess at the end of my teen years is kind of when all that happens. So,
0: yeah, absolutely. Well, statistically speaking, um, I know this is for Australia and it might be for, um, where you are as well, but statistically speaking, um, people that are age 15 to 21, are uh, at the highest risk in their life of sexual assault as women to be assaulted at that age. So it's a really high-risk time timeframe. Um, mm-hmm. And it's a really scary statistic, I think, because this is when, you know, you start to take on your own and learn about yourself and learn about different things and create friendship groups out of where you usually would have created friendship groups. And in Australia, um, at the lower end as well, you start drinking when you're 18. Um mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously, for America, it comes in at 21. So you've got all these different risk factors that are coming in at that time, but it is the highest risk time Mm -hmm. for anybody in their life. And it's just, it's scary that we don't already know that.
1: Yeah, that definitely makes sense. I don't know that I actually knew that statistic, but I'm sure I'm sure it probably is similar for the US. I think that I know that I know that there I have seen statistics around, um, yeah, just the prevalence of sexual assault during the college years. So that um that kind of makes sense that it's in that age range i think yeah like you mentioned alcohol too i think that's a big part of it um and yeah in the u.s the drinking age is 21 but most people i would say do start drinking closer to 18 um so yeah those years are kind of when yeah that comes into play and then just being yeah like more independent away from your parents um good and bad obviously yeah
0: Yeah, absolutely. So for you in these college years, were you on campus or were you living at home still?
1: I was on campus. Yeah. So I went to college, um, about four hours away from where I live now. Um, so it was kind of nice. I wanted to get a little bit away from home, but not be too far so I could still drive home, you know, if I needed to visit my family, but yeah, so I was living on campus. We, um, at my school that I went to, we actually were required required to live on campus, um, the first two years. Um, so yes, I lived on campus the first two years and then my third year, which is when, um, two of the assaults happened, I was living off campus, but I was still living very close to campus. So it was a lot of students lived kind of in these apartments or houses that were walking distance to campus. And it was still a lot of, um, you know going to parties and things house parties near campus or um yeah different social events that were still you know either on campus or near campus so
0: yeah um, just better housing yeah. kind of the school housing but not within the the schooling system itself that's so common um mm-hmm. you know near my university and everything that I went to there were so many just flats like you um units around um, and that was really way more common than staying in the dorm rooms because you had your own bathroom and everything like that in these places, and the mm-hmm. cost wasn't much different. so it does make sense. Yeah. It's a bit weird, I think that you had to stay there though, for the first two years. Is that weird?
1: Yeah, I don't know if that's a maybe that is an American thing. I hadn't really thought about it until I started talking about it. I was like, yeah, that, it's definitely not all the universities here, but um, but a good amount of them make you do that for some reason. I'm not sure what the kind of reasoning behind it is. But um, yeah, it seems kind of random. Like some of, you know, some of my friends that went to different schools, they didn't have to do that. But I know, like my younger sister, her college did that as well. She had to live on campus for a couple years. So um, yeah, I'm not sure if it's, if it's like a financial thing, where they're kind of wanting you to pay for on campus housing, or if it's like, they're wanting you to just be more, be on campus more, be meeting new people or something. Um, Yeah, that is interesting. I wonder if, yeah, maybe it is more common in other countries to kind of stay at home or live somewhere else and be going to college. But, um, yeah, I would say it's actually pretty, pretty normal here. It's definitely not like, yeah. unheard of or anything. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. It's just for everyone that I know, and I think I equate college with university because it's basically mm-hmm. that, that level, isn't it? It's yeah. After mm-hmm. Yeah. So I just equate that with I, I honestly don't know anybody in my life that has ever stayed in college or in university dorms. Not one person.
1: Yeah, <laughs> like it, I think no, it is interesting. Yeah,
0: most people I know went to university close to where we live, which is really close. Uh, like mine was about forty minutes away driving. But um, even friends that I had that went interstate, so quite a while away, they just got their own apartment or something. So it's just it's very mm-hmm. culturally and so different and i remember this is such a dumb memory that i have but when we were younger when we first started drinking i remember like the alcohol chains and stuff cuz we don't buy alcohol in supermarkets we buy alcohol in like actual alcohol stores so i walked into an alcohol store like i'd just freshly turned 18 and they had big red cups and i was like oh my god this is so trendy Because we never had them. But all we had seen on movies was like frat parties that like have these big red cups. (laughs) And it was like a trend thing where everyone was like, everybody stock up. Or if somebody goes to America, people would bring back big red cups because (laughs) it was really cool.
1: (laughs) That's so funny. Yeah, I do feel like it was definitely a, or still is, I guess, probably a trendy thing with, yeah, even living here, it was like, yeah, we, every, yeah, whenever you went to a party, everyone had to be drinking out of – and it always – yeah, it has to be the red cups for some reason. So we also yeah. have like – you know, there's obviously like blue and different colored solo cups, but it's always the the red solo cup that seems like it's become the – yeah, the trendy thing to drink at a party. <laughs> yeah. But that's funny. I hadn't even thought about that. That was – that might be like a piece of American culture that other, yeah. other places are like, oh, we have to get that too.
0: <laughs> yeah, it literally is. It's obviously from movies, but – um. Yeah, I remember telling one of my other American guests that and she was just like, that is the dumbest thing I've ever (laughs) heard. I was like, (laughs) I know. It's just
1: funny, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, it Yeah, we definitely have a kind of unique drinking culture in the United States. Not necessarily unique. I know other countries also have a lot of binge drinking and things like that. But I think the U.S. has like a pretty big problem with it, I would say, and especially when you're in university and you're like, yeah, kind of like what you brought up too. It's like it, you kind of feel like it's it's cool or it's the trendy thing to be doing certain things, and a lot of times that does include like drinking heavily, um,
0: yeah, to excess
1: or binge, yeah, binge drinking is what, yeah. So absolutely. I think that um, definitely plays into a lot of the sexual assault that like happens on college campuses as alcohol is involved in it. I guess so, absolutely, um, but. Yeah, and then the yeah, like you said, the movies too. I think movies just kind of make it look like it's the cool thing to do to to get blackout drunk and to you know all these different things. And it's um, obviously can be really dangerous in certain situations too. So um, it's like, yeah, it's interesting to think about how um, American culture has kind of like made it into a cool looking thing. But then it's like there's definitely the other side of it where. Um, yeah, a lot of times people get into really bad situations. Um, not that it, not that I would say that I would totally blame alcohol obviously, but I think it definitely, it doesn't help things most of the time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think it definitely um, blurs lines sometimes mm -hmm. between, you know, consent, um, specifically like Mm -hmm. whether somebody is consenting or not. Um, and I think in some people as well, it just can either remove a mask for somebody who's not a very good person that's trying to pretend that they are um mm-hmm. or people i think on alcohol tend to showboat a lot as well like their their ego is so so close to that edge of being damaged and that's when you know some like a you know the typical one where a man's assaulting a woman and it might not just be um you know that there's been an assumption over consent for example but Mm -hmm. where somebody said no and they've not respected that because they're at that level where they've taken it as an offense and a slight to their manhood or something and then they act out inappropriately um and end up really damaging that person for the rest of their life
1: Mm -hmm. yeah definitely no I, I totally agree with that I think that is a very common thing that happens I think um I guess going back to like how you mentioned movies and stuff I do, I get kind of upset sometimes when I realize like a lot of movies and TV shows, I think they've gotten better now, but at least for a while they would kind of promote this idea that, that I almost feel like they were trying to tell men that they are supposed to be very persistent or that, you know, like they kind of like gave this image of what it means to be a man or something. And so I think, yeah, you're right. That does kind of feed into it sometimes when um, men are kind of, told, I think, from a young age, like, oh, she might just be shy. And she or like, she might kind of seem like she doesn't want to, but maybe she does. And she just is afraid to say yes, or like all these things that are totally, obviously off base and not, you know, go against consent completely. But um, I think, yeah, I think you're right that then when you bring in like, kind of the ego part of it, where it's like, or the pride almost, um, or I think a lot of men also kind of have it in their heads that like, yeah, if you get to a certain point where, okay, maybe we were, um, maybe we've already been kissing or, um, we were at a bar together and you bought me a drink. And like, there's these certain things that almost some men, unfortunately, I think have this thought process of like, this equals sex, you know, like if this happens, then like, if, if I ask her to come back to my apartment with me, which is kind of what happened in my case where I, I was like, yeah, I want to go back to, and like my brain was kind of like, I want to like spend more time with this guy. He's really cute. I like him. I want to like get to know him better. I didn't want to say, I guess I felt weird saying no to just like going back to his apartment with him. Um, But then I think in his mind, he was probably thinking, Oh, she said she wanted to come home with me. That means she wants to have sex with me. Um, And then, yeah, in my case, I did very clearly say no. And like you said, like even when someone says no, a lot of times, um, yeah, they could maybe, um, or that, yeah, that no is not necessarily respected or listened to all the time. Um, and yeah, I think you're totally right that it, a lot of times that it probably is tied to this idea of like, well, why did you do X, Y, and Z if you didn't want this or, you know? And so I think, yeah, I'm like very passionate about trying to yeah have more of these conversations and kind of raise awareness around like, um, just because she wanted to, you know, go this far does not mean she wants to have sex or just because she agreed to go home with you. Doesn't mean that she's wanting to have sex, especially, I think especially when going back to alcohol, like especially when alcohol is involved, I think um, I've been doing a lot of research lately around alcohol just because I think it's really fascinating, but yeah, it definitely like impairs your decision-making ability, your ability to kind of, yeah, you know, rationally like make certain decisions. And so, um, you know, I, I think, You can't really say like someone is in their um, in their right mind to be like saying, "Oh, I'm choosing to go home with him because I want to have sex with him," versus like maybe she's just saying yes because he asked and she didn't. And again, like that alcohol kind of plays into like your ability, like to make a decision about something. So, um, and then I think that's yeah, that's where the blurred lines come into where you know, um, I think for a lot of men they might get they feel like they're getting mixed signals even though um to me consent is very like clear it's like you need to actually make sure that she you know you need to get like a verbal like yes from her and um and make sure that you're not kind of coercing in any way I think that's when people get confused too where it's like if you're just asking and asking and asking repeatedly and then she says yes like that's still not consent you know and I don't know. There's yeah. a lot of that's different things that I think are, yeah, yeah that's, yeah.
0: Mm. I think, um, I recently met, I went up to Sydney and I met Byron Dempsey and he's just this wonderful young man. And he has just done a new podcast called consent and consequences. And I'll link, um, that episode, but it is one of, it is so well done Um, and basically he interviews a man named Brent Sanders, who is a sexual assault and consent educator and has been for 25 years. And it's just the way that he speaks about it and speaking about it in terms of alcohol blew my mind as well in the way that they spoke about it, because in terms of the law, and this actually might be very different for you in America, because I'm aware that certain States have different laws, but in Australian law, If you have consumed alcohol and committed a crime or had a crime committed against you, that doesn't come into the fact of what the law states. If you were to be drunk and go to somebody's house and light their car on fire, you've committed arson. And in the eyes of the law, they would see that as you've committed arson regardless. Um, Maybe the sentence might be if you were really severely impaired or something like that, but at the end of the day, the law still states that. But when we think of sexual violence, we have this, you know, blurred line, but you can still commit a crime and be under the influence and have a crime committed against you and be under the influence. And that shouldn't matter. Like the alcohol in that point, if you're so impaired that you can't tell that somebody doesn't want the interaction to be happening, how the fuck are you having sex? Um, It's just beyond me. And I think the other part is with consent, you know, when you're like more sexually developed and you're a little bit older Mm -hmm. than like 16, 17, you know, when somebody's happy and into it and enjoying it and playing with you and you know, that consent can be like, do you like this? And it can be hot and it can be Mm -hmm. exciting. Whereas in a situation where you've blatantly said no, that's, I don't understand how the other person still wants to continue after that either.
1: Yeah, no, that's, that's what I don't understand either. Yeah, exactly what you just said. I feel like I, yeah, I always, I've made some TikTok videos about this, but I, yeah, I say like, I think people have this misconception that consent or like having some sort of consent conversation has to be really awkward and like serious and what, but like you said, it's like, it can be sexy. It can be, you know, it can be as simple as yeah. What do you want to do? Or what, what do you want to do next? Or do you like this? Does this feel good? Like, any little kind of confirmation of, do you want me to keep going? Do you like anything like that can be consent and you can, and that that's not going to, you know, I think the the thing that bothers me is when people almost make it sound like asking for consent will like turn the other person off or something. And I'm like, at least for me, especially obviously as a survivor, it's like that actually turns me on way more. If someone, if I'm like, Oh, he's really being attentive and making sure that I'm enjoying this, or like, he's really wanting me to, take control and tell him what I want to do or something like that's like super hot for me. So I think that's one thing that I always like yeah. to tell people is like, it's not, it's not going to ruin the mood at all. What's definitely going to ruin the mood is if you don't, you know, if you don't ask for consent and she's not enjoying it or he's not enjoying it. And um, yeah, it's like what you said too about like, yeah, typically you should be able to tell if someone's really, yeah, like you said, like it's very clear when someone's really into it and really enjoying it. And if, I feel like if you have to question that at all, then you should probably just stop and be like, and double check, you know, like if you're even like slightly like, I don't know, she seems a little off or she seems and yeah, that's something that I've thought about a lot about um, my sexual assaults, because I can look back and very clearly remember that I was just laying there completely still, like, and in my head, I'm like, I don't understand how in any situation, even if I had said yes, I feel like anyone would kind of stop and be like, Oh, are you okay? Like you're literally frozen, <laughs> you know, like you're not moving, you're not doing, you're not interacting with me at all. Like that to me is a very clear sign of um, the person is something's wrong. Like whether it's just that they're maybe getting triggered by something or that, you know, like it could, you know, cause it, that does, I still get triggered sometimes now, even if it's a consensual situation. So it could be that, but it's also like um, either way you kind of need to stop and." <laughs> um, make sure that things are good I think and yeah so I think yeah exactly what you said too like if they're yeah. too drunk to even be able to notice something like that then you're too drunk to be having consensual sex even like you shouldn't even be trying to do anything like that if you are not going to be able to really like read people's body language and and make sure that they're enjoying it and
0: yeah and I couldn't agree more when you're sitting like and I mean, women, we joke about this all the time and I'm on lesbian TikTok and I think it is just the funniest thing when like these yeah. straight guys are just like, you know, blah, 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 trying to say that they know all this stuff about women's bodies and it's just like, no, they don't. <laughs> but yeah. if you're in the same, like it's like a, it's it only benefits. There's only positives, I think, especially when you say something like, do you like that? You're kind of opening up the conversation to go, that's not my clip." you know (laughs) like redirect the person into a better sexual experience regardless of whether alcohol is involved or not and regardless of if you've been married for 25 years or not or if it's new or if it's an existing relationship or if there's a threesome happening for the first time or something like Mm -hmm. there is so many different ways to have sex and so many different types of sex, it is so important to just continually make sure that the other person is enjoying it as much, if not more than you are. And yeah, the converse to that as well is I think people are, are afraid of, of asking if the other person's happy because they don't want to receive the no. So by saying, yeah. do you like this? Yes, there's a chance that they're going to say no. And then you stop and that might not mean stopping sex; that might just mean stopping that act. Mm-hmm. But even if there is a no that makes them stop, their thought process being that oh, I by not asking, they're not going to say no. And I think that that's that same thing is just like it's like a white lie. You know what I mean? You you know that this person innately is not comfortable potentially, and you've just decided that by not making them able to say no, then you haven't done a crime though.
1: Mm-hmm
0: whereas it's yeah. not really under the law that's not what the that's not what consent says um and we we know very well that we've got our fight or flight response but like what you just said as well it is so important to talk about this this freeze response is a survival mechanism that we've been taught mm-hmm. throughout our lives and that's that's a very normal and a very valid way for your body to react in a situation of trauma and high stress and It's your body saying, I am in danger, something is wrong. This is the best way that I can see that I'm going to survive this. And that's a really full-on thing to take in and go, I've assessed this as being so dangerous that my body has stopped. And that's important for survivors to hear, I think, and talk about because I know so many survivors, one who only came forward to me yesterday for the first time, and she said to me she feels so guilty that she didn't ever fight back or run away. She was just so frightened of this man being so much bigger than her and she'd said no six or seven times and she just allowed it and she felt like – I think she said she just felt empty and she felt so so much shame in herself. And I think that 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 really struck a chord with me because to think that you're more guilty – of something happening to you because you reacted in a certain way really upsets me to think that they, you know, that, that could be thought of. But I can see why that's the feeling that she has. What was your feeling? You know, obviously it's traumatic and it's been awful and it's happened more than once. How have you dealt with with having the the freeze response?
1: Yeah, I, I yeah, I appreciate you saying all that, because that's definitely was something that I struggled with for a long time. The fact that I, I did have a freeze response um, in all three of the situations I was in and, and yeah, I think I can definitely relate to the friend you're talking about who I, yeah, I carried a lot of shame and guilt about that for a really long time because I, I think, yeah, I think like you said, it is important to talk about because I feel like for whatever reason, I think we hear about the fight and flight more maybe. Um, or that's more what people kind of picture when they think of like how someone would respond to a sexual assault. And I think I've even heard people like I've heard other survivors say that they always, before they were sexually assaulted, they kind of assumed that they would probably be someone who would fight or who would yeah run away or whatever. And then when it actually happened, it's like, yeah, I think it's important for people to remember that that you have no control over how your body responds. And like you said, it's just the way that your body is um, like the, the safest way that your body thinks that it should be reacting in that situation. And um, we really like have no control over what our response is. Um, So when I heard that for the first time, that really helped me a lot when I was like, okay, it's not like I was consciously choosing to have that response. That's just the way my body reacted. Um, And yeah, but I definitely felt very ashamed. Um, And then I also felt, yeah, for a long time, I kind of, it I would say it took me a long time to come to terms with the fact that I had been, that those experiences were sexual assault. I think for a long time, I just thought that, um, even though I've, even though, you know, right afterwards, I definitely was already like, I know I said, no, like, I know I said, no, that's a fact. I know that happened. And he kept going like, that is, you know, the definition of sexual assault is just like any unwanted, you know, sexual, yeah. Any unwanted sexual, like,
0: Encounter,
1: so yeah. yeah yeah encounter yeah but yeah it took me actually a few years maybe more like I'm yeah I'm 28 now um yeah it first happened when I was 19 or 20 and yeah I would say the first like two or three years I was kind of in denial about it a lot like I I think I knew deep down that that had been sexual assault but I didn't talk about it to anyone which I can look back now and realize that also like Obviously really slowed down my healing process because I was just trying to kind of Yeah, I was just in denial. I was just trying to like bury it and not like bottle it all up and not think about it basically.
0: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At blue nile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door.
1: And had, yeah, kind of just convinced myself that I, that had just been like drunk sex, you know, just like a casual hookup that I had that like, that I had definitely, I had wanted that. And it was just, you know, I was just maybe feeling, feeling upset that I had had sex with that person. And it, like, I told myself all these things that I think a lot of other people do say to survivors. So it's kind of interesting where I feel like I was almost like, I was shaming myself kind of like I was telling myself that no, that wasn't sexual assault, like, you know, you're being, I think another thing that I said to myself a lot was, like, other people have it so much worse, or, like, other people have been in worse situations, or, you know, um, I wasn't physically harmed in any, like, I wasn't, you know, beaten or anything, like, I was definitely, like, comparing myself to other situations, and being, like, and just being really hard on myself, like, oh, just get over it, it's, you know, (laughs) all these things that now I feel really that, I feel really sad that I like said those things to myself for so long, but I think I'm sharing it because I think a lot of other survivors do go through that as well. And, um, but yeah, I think there is something yeah, unique about the the freeze response is like people. Yeah. I've talked to a lot of other survivors too, who have felt really a lot of shame that that was their response. Um, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I would say, yeah, I think I had a really hard time with coming to terms with it for the first, like in general. And then, um, I think the other part of my story that I had a hard time with was that I chose not to report any of it, which makes sense. I think looking back not because it's like, why would I report something that I was still kind of not, that I was convincing myself hadn't actually happened, <laughs> you know, like I wasn't really in a mental place to, to realize that that was something that I could even report. And what you mentioned earlier too, about like how, when alcohol's involved, um, for some reason, a lot of times it's seen as like an excuse for the guy or something like an excuse that, oh, he was drunk. He probably didn't mean to do it. And like, so I remember thinking that a lot too. Of I remember almost like having these thoughts of if I were to report it, I don't know if anyone would believe me because I was drunk. He was drunk. I'm sure he could say different things of why he thinks it was consensual or whatever. And, you know, so I think that was a big part of what I felt ashamed of too, was like, not only did I freeze, but I also didn't report it. And so it's kind of like my word against everyone else, almost of like, I didn't even tell my friends about it. So no, for the longest time, it was like, nobody knows my stories besides me and um, will people believe me and all these things. And so, yeah, it took me a while. It took me probably until I would say the past three years was when I really started like slowly, but surely kind of, um, I started with just opening up to my close friends and my family. And that was kind of where I started with that was just like, and i actually ended up finding out that a few of my really close friends had also been sexually assaulted. And I like, it was one of those things where it was like, Oh, wow, I didn't know that about you. And they're like, I didn't know that about you. And it has really actually brought us a lot closer over the years now where it's like, okay, I'm really glad that I finally told them, even if it took me a long time. And that's something that we can relate on, even though it's like, obviously I wish none of us had gone through that, but It's just, it's interesting that it is so common that people just don't talk about it, you know? I don't know. Yeah. I think, would you, do you agree with that? I feel like a lot of survivors just try to take it on themselves kind of, and like just deal with it myself almost and not really want to ask for support or anything.
0: Absolutely. And honestly, since since starting this podcast, since posting my own stories on Instagram and TikTok and, and Facebook as well. And, and by sharing my own story, there are so many people, especially local people that I am not friends with. So these are people that I know through the community or I know their partner through the community have reached out to me and said they're not ready to tell anybody in their family what happened, they're not ready to do that. But by seeing somebody else, it's made them realise that they do have people out there to talk to. And I didn't, Mm -hmm. you know, initially speaking, out, I was quite obviously afraid to do that with my state as well. We actually have a law that says if you're a victim of sexual assault, you can't speak out against it publicly without a court order. It was, it's called, it's known as the gag law and it has kind of been removed now, but not formally because of COVID. Um, they haven't pushed it through legislation. I don't think you'd be charged with it now, but basically i I had to tell my story in a way that was ambiguous enough that if you didn't already know the story that you wouldn't be able to put together who it was, I wouldn't be able to name him or anything like that. But um. By going through that, having that in the media, I think at the same time it was called the Let Us Speak campaign, all of these people started to come forwards. And I realized that what I was doing, even though it might not be happen- helping on that macro level, on that you know thousands of people level, just to even reach one person that has gone through something awful having the courage to come up to me specifically and say this is what I went through and having somebody to talk about I think is worth it times 100 for each person. But I would literally say every day from somebody locally or, you know, at least somebody close by plus others from around the world, I have people disclosing to me for the first time in their life. And it's just – it's heartbreaking. But as well at the same time, you can see the benefit in going through it for yourself,
1: yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think that's that's kind of what I found with when I started my Facebook group. Um, it's just a private group, and I started it and kind of I posted about it a little bit, I think, on my social media, and also like invited some of my friends, people that I knew in real life that I knew had gone through that. And um, yeah, it's just been so eye opening to see like how quickly it's grown, um, and then also yeah, like you said, like I've had people message me on Facebook saying, yeah, like I'm not ready. Like you said, I'm not ready to talk to anyone in my life about this, but um, sometimes they will ask me to post anonymously for them in the Facebook group too. So they'll be like, if I send you my story, can you post it for me? Or sometimes if they have, if they're looking for some advice or have questions around, I get a lot of yeah, people that have questions around if they are going forward with trying to convict the person or something. Um, so they'll I'll, I'll like post it for them anonymously and they're just, so they can get kind of advice, but maybe they're not ready to have, their name associated with it. Um, yeah. But yeah, it is really, it's, it's very kind of powerful to see like people at all stages of, of their healing process. I think, yeah, I have people in the group who, you know, their assault happened like 40, 50 years ago, even And it's like, um, but you know, I think healing is obviously a lifelong kind of process and um, yeah. And there's people who will join the group and say like, this happened to me last weekend. I think that this is, you know, I think this is sexual assault. Like I I was talking to my friend about it and she told me that that's, you know, what happened to me is not okay. And I was just, you know, looking to see if there was any support out there and they, you know, they find the group. Yeah, I feel like one of the reasons why I started it was just because when I went through that, you know, seven, eight years ago, I really didn't have felt, I didn't feel like I had an online community or any community really to like lean on and to be able to trust. And um, so, yeah, it's really cool to see like, that even though it's such a yeah it's heartbreaking like you said it's like oh it's crazy how many people have experienced something like this um but I'm just mm. glad that you know that there are platforms now like what you do and what I do and what a lot of other people do now with just being more open about it on social media and um telling different stories so that people out there can be like oh wow I relate to that and um yeah like I remember the first yeah. time I heard someone else talk about having the freeze response I was like oh wow okay I'm not the only one that you know, before I'd really done research and realized that that was really common, I was like, literally kind of thought that I was the only person that reacted that way. And then just hearing one, even one other person be like, no, that's how I reacted too. I was like, oh, okay, I'm not alone in this. So yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, knowing that you're not crazy or that you're not an idiot or that you're not making a big deal out of something, because that's what society tells us, right? And they'll say to you, why didn't you fight back? And you go, I said, no, A hundred times, but we've been conditioned throughout our lives, specifically as women, that we will get yelled at when we reject somebody. Like, how many times have you been at a bar, some guys grabbed your ass or hit on you, and you've gone no or fuck off or said whatever you needed to to push them away, and then they turn around and aggressively come back at you and call you a dumb slut or something, and they get in your face, spit on you, or they're very, very aggressive. And when you've had that happen as the norm, in your and throughout your life you've said no in a sexual encounter with a man who's bigger than you who could quite easily overpower you and your in your response in your life is to go i i'm not going to allow it to happen but i'm not going to run away because i see that as being more dangerous i'm not going to fight back because i see that as more dangerous that's your response and i think when you break it down like that for somebody so that they understand they go okay because I had so many people coming up to me speaking about the freeze response specifically and saying, but they still allowed it to happen. And I was like, if I came up to you and was threatening you with your life to give me your car keys and I was going to take your car and eventually mm-hmm. you just go, this person's not going to give up, they've got me backed into a corner, I feel like the only thing I can do right now for my, to save my life is to give them the car keys, then they wouldn't be saying that. If the world wasn't the way that it was, if we as women didn't have to go through what we go through all of the time, maybe the freeze response wouldn't be as common. But the fact that you know that when you're making these really quick calculations, these subconscious decisions in your mind about what the safest option for you is to survive as a survival instinct, if that's what it is, that's because of your life experience and that's because all of these things have happened and that's because
1: mm-hmm.
0: when we re- reject men, they get aggressive and that's because, you know, and it's, yeah. it's really frustrates me to hear that side of the freeze response when people won't listen and go, but you allowed it. It's like, mm-hmm. what do you mean by that? You But you know that you're saying you allowed it doesn't mean consent either and it's not allowing yeah. it. And this is really an important distinction to make that, and I, when I spoke to the survivor the other day, it was really important, I think, for her to hear that it's not allowing it and that's not consent. That mm-hmm. this is specifically a survival mechanism that your body did because it saw it as the only way or the best way for you to survive. And I think that was just a really important distinction to make about the freeze response because it's never... And I think that's probably why it's harder for survivors to reconcile in their mind because the people around them are like, yeah, but that's not sexual assault. That's not rape because Mm -hmm. you allowed it to happen. And that's back to that movie situation as well because we see on the movies it's the person screaming and fighting and trying to run away and, you know, it's this big Frankenstein-like monster that is doing it. It's not the guy that you're laying next to that you actually kind of like that you're a little bit now frightened of and now you don't know what to do. Like that's not the scenario that many people are confronted with.
1: Yeah, that's so true. Yeah, I definitely, um, it's been interesting since I've started posting more on TikTok and Instagram about my experiences. I've definitely gotten a lot of those type of comments, um, around, yeah, like you allowed it or I I remember I was, even though (laughs) I'm like, I know it's not, doesn't do any good to keep arguing with, with people once they post stuff like that. But sometimes I'm like, I'm just gonna respond to their comment and see if I can like educate them or make them understand it the way that you've described too. Where it's like sometimes you just have to tell someone like in a different way to make them maybe see it in a different way. But yeah, um, but yeah, I remember ta- I remember kind of going back and forth with this one person who had commented on one of my videos, and he was saying that um, if I think it was actually a video around kind of coerc- how it's coercion if if the person is kind of continuing to ask you and not backing down or not taking no for an answer and he was like disagreeing with that and saying no it's not like it's not rape if he um, asks you ten times and you say no you say no nine times and on the tenth time you say yes like and it's like no that still is that's considered coercion like you shouldn't have I guess what I always think. And what I've had to kind of tell myself for a long time too, or remind myself of is like, we should only have to say no once we shouldn't be put in the position where we have to keep saying no, like if the first time someone says no, the other person should just be like, Okay, I hear that. And, and obviously, that's in a perfect world. And we know very well, that doesn't happen. But I think that's one way that I try to describe it to people is like, it shouldn't be our it, we shouldn't have to go on the defense of, of stopping something from happening we all we should have to do is just say no if we want to say no and then it's the other person's job to listen to that and respect that and you know hear what we're saying and then just not ask you know I don't know I I can't remember like any specific movie examples but I know that I've definitely seen scenes where it's like kind of she says and maybe it's just as something as simple as kissing or something where it's like she kind of pushes him away, but then he comes back and tries again. And then, like, finally she gives in. And it's like, and that's kind of framed in like a romantic sense almost in some movies, I think. Mm-hmm. So I think that gives people the idea that, like, oh, men are supposed to be persistent. They're, you know, if she says no at first, maybe she's just being timid or maybe she just feels like, you know, whatever. And it's like, people don't, you know, especially if, so for me too, like, I've always been someone who's a people pleaser i'm very like it's really hard for me to say no so i think that's been something that i've recognized too is like you know when i say no i really mean it like when i am able to like summon up the courage to be like no i don't want this this is not like this is and actually like communicate to someone that that i'm not comfortable or that i like that is like means that i really really you know believe that and feel that because i'm definitely the first person to be like okay, if you want to, you know, so it's like, I look back on those situations too. And I'm like, no, I can remember like very firmly holding my ground and being like, Hey, I don't want to have sex tonight, blah, blah, like having a whole conversation about it. And then that was still not, you know, Um, but that's not to say that you have to firmly say no either. I think a lot of times it's like, even if there's not a verbal yes or a no, you know, it goes back to what we talked about earlier. of you should still be kind of reading people's body language and making sure to, Yeah. To
0: ask what they want, but. Yeah. Enthusiastic consent. We want it to be happy to be there. Not, why would you ever want to be with somebody that's not happy to be there? You know, if you don't come to a conclusion of consent of your own free will, that's not consent. Whittling somebody down to a point where they are broken as people, because you've asked them so many times or threatening them in the process of doing that, or coercing them and manipulating them in the process of doing that that is not consent getting to a yes if your goal is to change somebody's mind like at the start of the day and I've had so many guys say this like oh at the start she was like well I'm not I don't have sex on the first date but I know that she will and it's just like think about yeah. what you're saying she's explicitly said up front at the beginning of your date yes you are going for drinks she does not want that why is that disrespected like what is the And then I'm like, in my mind, I'm like, do you realize what you're saying? What you're saying is if I give her enough alcohol, she might comply with what I want. You're a predator. You need to hear that and you need to listen to that because if you hear up front from somebody that says shit like that, that goes, oh, she won't, she'll, you know, she'll end up giving in. And you go, giving in? And this is common Like discussions that I've heard from so many people, you know, where they've gone, oh, you know, she says she doesn't fuck on the first date, but I can tell that she does, or I'm going to get her to a point where I can make it so that she does. You're openly telling everybody that, that you are, in fact, a sexual predator, that you, in fact, don't care about what her wants and needs are, and that you, in fact, are going to purposefully try to ply her with alcohol so that she comes to a conclusion – or so that you can control and manipulate her. That's fucked up. That's not, you know, and I think we can all think back on times where we've heard these conversations, especially with the younger boys that are saying things like this when they go on dates because they think that having sex with somebody is the ultimate goal. No, it makes me very angry <laughs> definitely yeah yeah I'm getting like, like I'm because it's harsh.
1: just like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know yeah and like you said it's like we've all heard these conversations like it's that's kind of a shocking part of it is like you know when you're saying these things I'm like oh yeah I can think of multiple times when I've heard people say stuff like that it's not like it's you know this is a very almost normalized type of thing to say and um yeah that's so why I, I kind of think that one of the best ways that we could hopefully try, start making change would be to you know, encouraging people, to, like when they hear their friends or someone saying that, like you need to actually speak up and be like, no, that's not like, that's not okay what you're saying. Or like, or like you said, like, do you realize what you're saying? Because what you're saying is that you are going to do X, Y, Z. And like, that's illegal. <laughs> like, that's not, you know, cause I think people just a lot of, and again, it's mostly men, although obviously men can be sexually assaulted as well. But um, I think, yeah, a lot of people just seem to not think that or they seem to think they can get away with saying stuff like that. And so I think just starting with, yeah, just even in your friend groups and things like if you hear someone say something like that, like, someone needs to be kind of brave enough to speak up and say, that's a really, yeah, fucked up mindset to have like you going into a date, you're plotting to get her drunk so that she will sleep with you, even though she's told you she doesn't want that, you know, or, yeah. And it is, like you said, it is like almost like an assumption that or like a goal, sex is the goal kind of of dates in certain people's minds or of, you know, going back to when I was in university too, it was like, we would go out to a bar and if a guy was buying you drinks um, at the time, I don't think I really realized it. But now I look back on that and I'm like, oh, he's, um, it's a weird, yeah, fucked up cup kind of things. So it's like, okay, either he's trying to pay, he's kind of paying for you. Like he's, buying you drinks a to to make you drunk but then b it's like he's almost paying to hopefully get you to sleep with him like he thinks that if he does this yeah. that's going to equal sex and i i have heard a lot of um yeah like guys have that mindset of like well she let me buy her drinks all night but then she didn't even sleep with me at the end of the night it's like if you're offering to buy her a drink that's on you you shouldn't be doing that like hoping that that's going to equal sex. <laughs> like it's, if you know, most people are going to say yes, if you offer them a free drink, um, and that doesn't mean that she <clears throat> wants to sleep with you or, and then again, it goes back to what you said too, or if you say, if you try to say no, if someone, you know, if someone does try to buy you a drink or something and you're like, no, or I have a boyfriend or whatever, like then they get real, sometimes get really aggressive or start. I've heard of people saying like terrible things to people when they say something like that. So it's like, So again, it's like they're putting us in this position of kind of having to say yes to their offer of buying us a drink. But then if that doesn't lead to what they want it to, then they get upset too. And yeah, it's just, um,
0: yeah. Yeah. I think it goes back to that patriarchal kind of thing, especially with men because women weren't allowed to work. They were the home, you know, they would, they were the home bodies. They didn't have an income. So the men paid for everything and the men courted the women. And, but in the, process of doing that what they're doing is trying to have ownership of you i've bought you drinks therefore i have bought you and that's that possession and control thing that they have they're trying to get you to a point where you're malleable and this is obviously not everybody but i think this is what i've seen a lot is that even if they're not thinking this overtly i think that in the back of their minds this is what they're thinking and this is why they're getting upset yeah i have done all I can to give you what you want, the drinks. I paid for that, therefore you owe me this. And Mm -hmm. it's, to me, something that we can work on with the younger generations by letting them know and understanding that that's not the case. It doesn't matter. Even a sex worker that you have paid for her services can withdraw her consent and take it back or his consent and take it back. And I don't know, give you your money back or something. But to think that that is the be-all and end-all of consent is is a really ridiculous thing in my mind. And I think that you know, sometimes I think, why are we even having this conversation? It's so obvious to me, but it clearly isn't obvious mm-hmm. to everybody that this is the case.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that's so true. Yeah, I feel like I've every now and then I'll see comments on TikTok or Instagram, and I'm like, oh wow, there really are people who still think that like because yeah sometimes a lot of the videos i make on tiktok i'm like oh i feel like this is obvious everyone probably knows this and then i'll still get comments of people you know blatantly like disrespecting that idea or just or just yeah yeah, having very what i view as very like you said patriarchal or just like old-fashioned like views on things and i'm like it's 2021 i feel like everyone should be on the same page but i will say i do feel like the younger generations um i do feel kind of hopeful that they are they do seem like they're moving the right direction like I feel like I have seen a lot of teenage boys and people on TikTok like you know sharing their support for survivors or talking about consent in a way that's like that I think again it goes back to like I think it's really helpful for for men to be joining the conversation too because then their friends might see that and they might be like okay that makes me think of it in a different way or something so I do feel like there's absolutely um, that we're moving in the right direction, but obviously it's still, there's still so many people that um, have very um, harmful views on these things and don't seem to understand. And um, yeah. Yeah. So it's definitely, it's, it's frustrating, but it's like, okay, I have faith that, it, that hopefully it's someday it will be a lot better, but we'll see, I
0: guess. <laughs> and I think, you know, It does go, I think, two ways as well. Um, And, you know, this is another friend's kind of story that I I was told recently. And it was um, two gay women were, you know, going on a date. They had kissed on their date and then they had quite a few drinks and everything. And then one of them was literally demanding that they go home together. And it was like, Why? And then the manipulation started, like the it went from the aggressive kind of, you know, I maybe she'll think this is hot, to the I'm gonna test the waters here and now play sad and be like, why don't you want to? Is it because of my looks? Is it why what have I done? In you could see the different angles that she was trying to do to get her to go home with her. And it's like this can happen, obviously, by women. And, you know, I don't want to ever exclude that from the conversation. We tend to generalize males against females or men Mm -hmm. against women because it is the most common one. And because, you know, there is still stigma associated with it if you are gay and there is still Mm -hmm. stigma associated with it if you are in any way LGBTIQA+. And then there's also Mm -hmm. the added thing is if you're a man and you've been sexually assaulted, especially by a female, the stigma associated with that is just I don't I wouldn't say that it is worse from the community of sexual assault survivors because there are people out there who trust and love and believe you, but I mm-hmm. think that the problem is other men who don't see or legitimize or listen to what they've gone through, and I think that's really harmful. Yeah. And I think possibly once we start to talk more about this and we, you know, we start seeing more men coming forward about their sexual assaults, then Maybe the shift will happen, but for now it is very much, you know, young women specifically speaking up about what's happened to them by men because that's overwhelmingly where the statistics lie. I think it's one in four women will be sexually assaulted in the age group that we're talking about, the the 15 to 21, and I think it's one in 16 men. And yeah. that's still too many, but for that mm-hmm. – to not come across in the way that we speak. I think It is important to say that for me that I don't want this to only be about women, but I want to make it very clear that it overwhelmingly is. And, you know, that's the other thing that I've seen on, you know, I posted on my TikTok and the first comment I got was men are sexually assaulted too. I'm like, motherfucker, I know. <laughs> like don't, yeah. I'm like, this is just, is it because I'm a woman that you think that I don't know that, Mm-hmm. you know, and the not all men, we yeah. know.
1: No, that makes me really frustrated too. Yeah. And I think, no, you're right. It's really, yeah, that I'm very passionate about like, yeah, making sure that I, cause I think as a woman, um, I automatically kind of speak from my own experiences or my own stories. Yeah. And then, yeah, I think I do sometimes catch myself and think like, okay, I don't want it to sound like I'm saying that men are the only ones who commit sexual assault or that women are the only ones who experience sexual assault or, and then, yeah, like you said, like LGBTQ plus as well. Like there's a lot of stigma around all of that. And yeah, with my Facebook group that I started, um, I did actually, when I was kind of coming up with the idea for it, I originally was thinking of having it be only for women or having, saying something around like for, you know, women, like female sexual assault survivor or something. And then I kind of realized like, no, I don't want to exclude you know, men. And I, I, I do feel like the group as of now is um, majority women, but we do have men in the group. And I have talked to some of them and they have said, like, sometimes they feel unsure if they should post or unsure if they should comment because they're not sure how, like, they don't, yeah, they still don't feel completely accepted into, you know, the the survivor community. And they're like, it's nothing against, you know, they're like, we love your group. Like, it's nothing against you or anything. It's just like, they still have that kind of fear around like how will someone respond if I say I'm a male, you know, survivor or that, or yeah, like that it was a woman who did this to me. Like, um, yeah, it's unfortunate that there still is a lot of that out there, I think. And a lot of the kind of messed up stuff around like, um, you know, people assuming that if, if you're a man, you are supposed to want sex or any sort of sexual, you know, activity like all the time. And so, why wouldn't you All want it if a woman was trying, you know, and it's like, that's not how that works. Like, um, and then, mm. yeah, like it's just, it's, um, yeah, it's unfortunate. And then, yeah, like you said, like those comments about men get sexually assaulted too. I, I saw someone either make a comment or make a video about this that I, I thought that they explained it really well, but they said like, it seems like a lot of times the only time that men start to advocate for, male sexual assault survivors is when a woman typically is talking about her experience. And then it's like, it comes across as if they're yeah. just trying to invalidate us, right? They're just like, well, what about men? It's, yeah, it's the same thing as not all men. It's the same thing as um, yeah. all lives matter, you know, it's like, it's when people start talking about one specific group and like their experiences, then suddenly people are like, what about these other things? And it's like, we're not, you know, yeah. by saying that X amount of women are sexually assaulted, we're not discounting that these men are also also experienced that. It's like, you know, but it's yeah, it is just really, really infuriating when it's like really obvious that they're only saying that to try to maybe get a rise out of you or to just invalidate what you're talking about. Or yeah, like they're assuming that we Usually, yeah. don't know that. Yeah. It's frustrating.
0: <laughs> yeah. I think if the only time that you speak up about sexual assaults for men is to invalidate and trivialize a woman's experience is the epitome of patriarchy Mm -hmm. where's you going and starting a male only men only survivor support network you know I do empathize for those guys who are in that group because you know while they probably do feel included to a degree they don't understand they don't relate to a lot of women's experiences because Mm -hmm. they've never had to deal with them. And I think it is a really understandable position to be like, I'm not kind of a part of the group because I don't get it. A lot Mm -hmm. of it I don't relate to, but however, on this one thing I do. And I think most, I think I couldn't think of a time where, I think it's happened a couple of times, but where a man's come to any kind of women survivor's And they've invalidated their experiences. I have heard a couple of times of people saying, well, it's worse for women, but that's just a stupid response. And I don't think most survivors ever, I think people in the community are different, but I don't think that there are many survivors themselves who would listen to that and ever invalidate somebody's experience regardless of who they are. And, you know, I can empathize with people in prison you know, where it's like, let's make mm-hmm. jokes about this that somebody's going to go to prison and be, you know, sexually assaulted. Like, that's yeah. not funny. That's horrible. Yeah. To think, mm-hmm. you know, even if my abuser going there, the thought of that happening, I'm like, I don't want that to happen to anybody and yeah. anybody ever. But we think about it and we laugh about it in mm-hmm. terms of that. And it's like, what is that the most ridiculous? I don't know. Anyway, it's just, yeah. I find it to be insane. But, you know, I will always call that out. If your only time that you're going to speak up about male sexual violence is when a woman is c- talking about her experience, you're only then aiming to trivialise and minimise her experience. That's it. Yeah. You know, by saying that you're yeah. a woman who's a victim of violence, as sexual violence, does not mean that you're saying that it doesn't happen to men. It doesn't say that you're not supporting men. I mm-hmm. think 99% of women would. So, Yeah, definitely. Yeah, we need to get mm-hmm. better at educating people on that, I think. And it's good to start talking about it and highlighting it as a specific topic. Um, because mm-hmm. it's important to talk about. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. I've enjoyed yeah. I don't want to say enjoyed, enjoyed is the wrong word. I have I've very much enjoyed meeting you. Um and thank having you. the yeah. discussion that we have have had, especially around the freeze response and, and what it's been mm-hmm. like for you. I think your experience and what you've gone through Really highlights something important. And I think that's something that so many survivors are really going to relate to and gain a lot of power from this discussion. So thank you so much for coming on.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciate having this, you know, opportunity to talk about it and to talk to another survivor is always really empowering. And um, yeah, I'm really glad I got to have this conversation with you and meet you. So thank you for having you me. You too.
0: So where can um, our listeners find you? So you've got um, all of your socials and the network. Where can we find you?
1: Yeah. So my social media is shamelessly Shelly. Shelly spelled S-H-E-L-L-Y. And so that's my Instagram and TikTok handle. And then my Facebook group. If you are on Facebook and want to join that, you can just search for Surviving and Thriving. I think the full title is Surviving and Thriving, a support group for sexual assault survivors. So if you search that into Facebook, you can find that and join that there. and yeah, I post a lot of information on there about the other kind of the group and the one-on-one coaching that I do as well, if anyone's interested in that. but yeah, and then I always welcome people you know messaging me on Instagram or reaching out on Facebook if you ever need to talk. I love you know meeting new people and talking to them. so yeah, I would definitely love to connect with with some of your listeners.:
0: <laughs> Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. I will make sure that I link all of those in the show notes for this episode. Um, but for now, thank you for listening. This is Reclaim Me signing off. This content may have been distressing or triggering for some listeners. In Australia, for national crisis support, please contact Lifeline on one three one 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 four. For more resources, please see the show notes for this episode.